There's sometimes when it's sort of hard for us to believe that the authors of the scriptures actually were, were real people, that they, they lived real lives. They had, they had real struggles and they had real joys and real successes. Um, the, the author of 1 John is a man by the name of John, and he was a real person. He was a real person that had some pretty unique experiences in his life. He was one of the best friends of Jesus while Jesus walked the earth. He was one of the 12 disciples, but he seemed to have been in the inner circle. He, he got access to things that not everybody got access to. And one evening, the, the evening that Jesus was betrayed, he, he had his people, his disciples around a table, and, and they would all sort of lounge in those days. And, and John was the one who leaned right on Jesus. I mean, just pause for a moment and imagine what that might have been like. To smell him. To have him rub up against you to, to, hear, to hear him laugh, to hear him chew, <laughs> maybe with his mouth open. I don't know. Uh, John goes on to write in his gospel in that same chapter that, that he was the one who Jesus loved. Evidently, um, John, the apostle John and Jesus had a, had a fairly unique and deep and meaningful friendship. In fact, it was, it was John. If you, if you want to flip over, you have your Bible open. If not, you, you can just listen to me read it. But it was John in John chapter 19 who records the words of Jesus as Jesus hangs on the cross. It says, and when Jesus saw his mother and his disciple whom he loved, he's talking about himself here in the gospel of John. Standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to his disciple, behold your mother. Um, so here's what's going on. Jesus is hanging on the cross, dying for the sin of humanity, and he looks down at his friend. He looks down at his mom, and he says, hey, John, from now on, you're taking care of my mama. That's what he said. Now, here's the deal. It, John takes this seriously. I mean, I almost expected to read, um, excuse me, could you repeat that? Right? Because what would somebody have to do to let their mom move into your house? Right? Probably die for you. That's, that's what it would take for some of you. And even then, some of you are going, no, I'm not sure I'd even do it then. <laughs> But here's what John does. It says, and from that hour, the disciple took her to his own house. From that moment on, John is caring for the mother of the Messiah. I mean, you think he heard some stories? I mean, here, here's, moms love to tell stories about their kids. If you think Mary was any different, you're wrong. To hear the stories about what Jesus was like when he was a, a little kid, to hear the, the stories about the way that he um, frustrated her. Can you imagine telling somebody, oh, that Jesus really frustrated me one time? <laughs> you imagine what, what John has seen and what John has been through. The fact that Jesus says, hey, John, will you, will you care for my mom tells us something about the character of the person who's writing this 
letter. Would you open with me to 1 John? For the next six weeks, we're going to be walking through this, this letter, this epistle, and it's John, who's now Pastor John. And he's writing to a group of churches that are in the region of Ephesus where he lives, and um, there's a number of them around, and John's sort of seen as the patriarch. He's he's the one who's walked with Jesus. He's the one who's talked with Jesus, and and he's writing to churches that are in the bit of a a pluralistic milieu, um, much like the society that we live in today. There's a number of people that are looking at them going, well, We're not so sure that we really believe that Jesus actually came and lived, and we're not so sure that it has any sort of implications for our life today. And so, in light of that, in light of the the sort of the, the status of the culture that the church was not only birthed in, but but living in, John picks up the pen and he puts it to the parchment and he records this letter that's intended to be read by the churches in that region. And here's what he says. He says, that which was from the beginning, that which we heard with, which we heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, which we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He's talking about Jesus. He says, the life was made manifest or it came into the light. And we have seen it. We testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Now here's what you you can't see necessarily in your English translation of this passage of Scripture. That actually verses 1 through 4 are all one long run-on sentence. I mean, it's as though John is sitting there in his study or wherever he was in Ephesus, and he picks up his pen, and he just, he starts to write. And it's just this, like, almost word vomit type of writing, where he's going, oh, you guys, you guys, you guys, we, we've, we've seen him, we've touched him, we've, we've heard him. I leaned up against him at dinner, I took care of his mom, I was, it was all of that. Um, Last week, uh, Kelly and I went and we watched our son, Ethan, who's eight years old, perform in their third grade performance at Runyon Elementary School, which is the shadow play. And it's where they use backlighting to act out um, Aesop's fables. There's a lot of this that goes on, right? (laughs) At least I was hoping there would be more of that. But so, so here's what they're doing. They're taking Aesop's fables, which are essentially morals. They're, you've heard of the tortoise and the hare, right? The, the long, steady, slow, eventually does what? Wins the race. Right, right, right. And there are all these sort of made-up stories. Listen, this just in. The, the tortoise did not actually race the hare, right? Aesop wasn't going, oh, yeah, that's how that works out. It's, it's what we would call fable, with a, with a moral attached to it. And here's what John does. When John starts to pick up pen and parchment, and he says, we've, we've heard him, we've seen him, we've touched him. Here's what he presses on us as people who now go to the scriptures. We don't get the option to put Jesus in the category of fable. We don't get the option to moralize Jesus, 
to say that he just came to give us an example of what it looks like to live an exemplar life. We, we don't get to do that because he actually came and he actually lived and he actually walked. And see, what John's doing is he's writing to address two misconceptions that people had in the first century and specifically in the region in which his churches are starting to be birthed. Here's the first misconception, the, the, the narrative that people had about spirituality. It was called um, docetism. Will you say that with me? Docetism, right. And here is what the docetists believed. They believed and taught that, that Jesus only appeared to have a body, that he was not actually incarnate, that you couldn't actually touch him, you couldn't actually pat him on the back, he didn't actually smile or eat. Those were all sort of figments of the imagination of the disciples. Here's the second what later became known as a heresy that John is addressing. It's related, but, but it's nuanced. It's different. It's called Gnosticism. Will you say that with me? Yeah. And here's what the Gnosticists asserted. They, they asserted that, that matter or that the physical was inherently evil and spirit was good. Okay, so you go, oh, well, all right. But here was where they went with that. As a result, the Gnosticists believed that anything done in the body, even the grossest, most heinous, most evil, most vile sin, had no meaning in life because real life existed in the spirit realm only. Okay, so let that sit in for a second. Here's what, I mean, imagine this, imagine this. Imagine that there is a group of people saying, that they walk with God, saying that they interact with God, and then using it to justify all sorts of crazy, ridiculous things. Can you imagine that? That's not that far off, right? Like, we often go to the scriptures and go, man, a lot's changed since then, and certainly a lot has changed, but not everything Here's what they want to do. They want to claim that they are spiritual, and they may even want to be spiritual, but in a way that has zero impact on their everyday actual lives. That's what they want. Do you know that today, in the most recent survey done of Americans, that 27% of Americans would say they are spiritual but not religious? In, in large part, what they're saying is, um, we want to be spiritual. We believe that at the core of who we are, wired into the fabric of our being, we're spiritual people. But we don't want a spiritual being, we don't want it to be above us and tell us how to live. We just want it to be beside us and to pat us on the back and to give us encouragement and to make our life, whatever we decide we want to do with it, better. It's the exact same thing that was going on when John is writing to the churches at Ephesus. Part of what they want and part of what we want is something that makes our life better, but that doesn't tell us actually how to live. Remember, a number of years ago, I was standing in line at DIA waiting to go through the security checkpoint, and I walked past a guy, and I was looking at him, and I read this tattoo that he had on his neck, and the tattoo said, carpe diem, seize the day, and I thought, this guy's hardcore, right? Like, you've lost jobs 
over seizing the day. You go, dude, right? And I kid you not, you can't make this up. Carpe diem tattooed on his neck and his shirt said, I'm allergic to mornings. (laughs) Carpe afternoon. Carpe evening, if you will. Right, so I, I think a lot of people, that, that's what they want. They, they want. they want the best of both worlds. I want to say that I'm spiritual. I even want to be spiritual. But when it comes down to it, I do not want that spirituality to impact the way that I live. I want to be able to do whatever I want. And here's what John wants to say. It doesn't work like that. You don't get to incorporate Jesus into whatever life you want to live. Why? Because he actually came. He actually lived. We saw him. We heard him. We touched him. And John would say that true spirituality is not some figment of our imagination. It's not some ethereal ascent to some cognitive belief. Genuine, true spirituality is experienced in reality, in the everyday, and in the normal, ordinary, talking, hearing, seeing, every day. Here's the way that he says it. He says in 1 John chapter 1, uh, verse 5, he says, and this is the message we heard from him. This is, what, this is what Jesus said to us and that we proclaim or preach or admonish to you. That, and will you say this with me, church? God is light, and in him, there's no darkness at all. Um, So if a Hebrew mind would have heard God is light, they would have immediately gone back to the very first chapters of the Bible. That God speaks light into into existence and and it starts to shine. Um, A Greek mind would have been maybe a little bit more philosophic and what they would have heard and certainly is true is that God is light in the sense that God is God is goodness, and God is love, and God is beauty, and God is meaning, and God is truth. It's a multidimensional term. It's really interesting because Isaac Newton started to study light centuries and centuries ago. And he started to make some discoveries that eventually Albert Einstein built upon. And here's what Albert Einstein found out about light. Light is one of the most complex things in our universe. Scientists have a hard time pinning it down. It's slippery to try to describe light. And here is why. Here's why. Because light, unlike most other things in in the cosmos, light is both wave and particle. Light is both matter and energy. And so when John starts talking about light embedded in what he's saying, he's going, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's an, there's an energy that's coming from God, but it doesn't just stay in that sort of ethereal, hypothetical plane. It actually intersects with our everyday life. He goes, it's, it's both. It's both. Would you agree that knowing about something cognitively and experiencing it in reality are two different things? When you walked in, you got a a Snickers bar. Will you take that out? Let's have a confession time. Who already ate theirs? (laughs) Most of you, sinners, okay? 
Snickers should say sinners on yours, okay? Hey, will you uh, do me a favor here? Here's what I'd like to do. I, I want some interaction here. Will you describe to me this Snickers bar? Describe it to me. Just yell a few things out. It's delicious, okay? Okay, it's, it's brown. Yeah, you can open it up. Okay, it's chewy. It's fun. It's a fun size, isn't it? A little bit bigger and it's not as fun, right? This size is fun, right? I decide that. Okay? All right, if you were to, if you were to describe a Snickers bar to someone, here's what, here's what you might say. It's um, a, a, a nougaty inside that has peanuts on top of it, caramel on top, and it's covered in chocolate, right? And you go, well, that pretty much nails a Snickers bar, right? Okay, now, here's, here, will, you, um, will you open it up with me? And will you, uh, just, just, unless you're allergic to peanuts... Or gluten-free, dairy-free, all the free stuff that we are now. Will you, um, if, you're, if you're able, take a, bite, take a bite of your Snickers bar. Now, would you do me a favor? If tasting a Snickers bar is fundamentally different than having it described to you, will you just raise your hand? So that's what John says. That's John's point. Is that experiencing Jesus is way different than just hearing about Jesus. It's way different than just having the stories passed down to us. It's the invitation of the Christian life is, as the psalmist says in Psalm chapter 34, verse 8, is to taste and to see that God is what? That God is good. That God is good. See, the Christian maturity, Christian, the Christian journey of understanding the heart of Jesus and living in the way of Jesus, that it is always, always, always more than an experience. There's something transcendent, there's something true that goes beyond your experience. Will you look up at me? But being a follower of Jesus is never less than an experience. It's always more, but it's never less. I mean, you can see this in John chapter 9. There's this man that's born blind, and he's healed by Jesus. And everybody goes up to him and goes, like, we want to explain how it happened. And he goes, listen, I don't know how it happened. I don't know the mechanics of it. I can't, I can't explain it to you. All I know is that I was blind, and now I see. I, I've... I've experienced it, and, and it's changed everything. And that's what John wants to press onto this community, is that, that when you taste it, when you touch it, when you see it, it fundamentally changes everything. I think too many followers of Jesus today have the opposite anthem. I'm still blind, but come and read what I read. Come and believe what I believe. Come and hear what I here. But early Christians, they had this anthem. Oh, we've, we've experienced the living Christ. We saw him, heard him, touched him, and we saw him die, and we saw him rise, and it's changed everything. 
We don't get the option to just believe in the morals and fables of Jesus. We either believe that he came and lived and died and rose, or we don't. He doesn't give us the other option. And when we believe, the scriptures say, and when we live in his way, it changes everything. So if I'm you, here's my question, okay? My question is, well, that's really good for John, the friend of Jesus, He ate with Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He high-fived Jesus. He went, no way, to Jesus. He heard stories from his mom. That's great for John, but what about for us? Because Jesus has been ascended for roughly 2,000 years. What are we supposed to do? I'm so glad you asked that. You're like dialed in today, which is (laughs) what I like about you, what I like about you. And here's what John's going to do. He's going to explain to us how we experience the light. 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Here's what he says. He says, That which we've seen, talking about Jesus still, and we've heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our, will you say this with me, Fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Time out there. Because what John is saying is that you and I, by faith in Jesus, have the unique, beautiful ability to step into fellowship with God. And that word fellowship in the Greek is the word koinonia, and it literally means to share life together, to have things in common So before he ever gets to, all right, we should have fellowship with one another, he wants to set a foundation for our fellowship as a a church, as a community of faith. And he says, our fellowship is based on the fact that you and I together have shared life with God. Okay, so before we go on, will you just pause for a moment and let that sink in? The scriptures say that You and all your humanity and all of your frailty have shared life with God. He also says that we would have shared life or fellowship with each other. Fellowship with each other. And he says, listen, and that fellowship is for your joy. See, you and I, we experience the light when we taste genuine fellowship. And early followers of Jesus, they were all over this. I mean, this was a huge calling card for their communities, that they shared life together. They took seriously the words of Jesus as as he's praying for his disciples that would come after him, you and I. Here's his prayer for us. He says, the glory that you have given me. So he's praying to his father, God, the glory you've given me, I have given to them. You're a glorious person. You're filled with glory. You're filled with beauty. You're filled with a weightiness about you because God has spoken over your life. And he says, that day, so this glory in us does something, that they would be what? One. Even as we are what? One. So you go and you read the book of Acts and you see in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 that the early church had this ethos where if there were people in need in their community that 
others sold property and cashed it out and shared with people who had needs that they just couldn't meet on their own. You see people gathering in homes and praying together. You see people studying the scriptures together. You see people eating together. You see people looking at Caesar who claimed that he was Lord and saying, hey, Caesar, we don't need you to care for us. We've got each other and this just in. Jesus is our Lord. And it was a community that turned the world upside down. You start to fast forward a few hundred years, and and in the 200s and 300s, the early church was known as a community of love, where when the plagues were just ravishing the world at the time, followers of Jesus would go and would take people who their own families had cast into gutters, Because they had the plague and they were afraid of dying, they would go and they would say, we fear, we do not fear death. And they would care for the sick, bring them into their homes at the cost oftentimes of their own life. And you know what happened? People started to go, well, well, that's, that's light. That's, that's love. That's totally different than anything we've ever seen. And it turned the world upside down. They had extreme influence and no power. Extreme influence, zero power. I'd argue that in our current status right now, we have a lot of influence, or a lot of power, and I don't know if we have the type of influence that Jesus would say, my church is intended to have as light. And I know, I know, I know. We, we hear, man, genuine fellowship, and we go, well, that would be really easy if everyone were exactly like me, right? Or that would be really easy. Fellowship would be amazing and joyful and fun if it weren't for the people. We love the idea of sharing life. We just don't like when it actually gets on the ground. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his great little book entitled Life Together, says that actual, true, genuine Christian community only begins when the ideal dies. Community really only starts when you want to leave and decide to stay. Genuine Christian community only begins when people hurt you and you choose to forgive them. That's when it actually begins. And it's this type of community in friendships, in marriages, in churches, in workplaces, in neighborhoods that have changed the world. So here's the deal. When we say, would it be possible for you to come to one service and attend one service? It's not so that we can fill a slot that we need filled. Our hope and our prayer is not to get something from you. We want something for you. And our hope and our prayer is that you would experience the light. His name is Jesus, and maybe it's shaking hands at the door, realizing you're part of a mission bigger than your own. Maybe it's holding a baby who's crying. Maybe it's doing that still face baby experiment. I'm not sure exactly what it is, okay? Our hope is that you would experience light. In a life group, we don't just want to have a bunch of life groups. We want to have a bunch of people doing life together. 
because we believe that you actually taste and see the goodness of God as you live in community with one another. And so John goes on. After saying that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all, he goes on to make three if we statements. So he's going to start verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10 with this phrase, if we, and he's going to draw out one of the biggest inhibitors to walking in the light. Here's what he says. If we say we have fellowship or shared life with him while we walk in darkness, we what? Lie. And we do not practice the truth. Now, he's not talking about, about the ways that we all genuinely screw up, the way that we all make mistakes. He's talking about a pattern of life that exhibits a continual darkness rather than being in the light of Jesus. And what, there's a word that Jesus would use to describe that kind of a person. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 23. He would use the term hypocrite. Someone who says one thing, but actually goes and lives in a completely other type of way. Oh yeah, we, we believe that Jesus is Lord, but then it doesn't get out of their life in any way, shape, or form. The great pastor and author, Brendan Manning, put it like this. He said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyles. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. The first century term for that was the Gnostics. It was people who just wanted this spiritual experience, but had no intention of actually living it out. Will you look up at me for a second, friends? The unbelieving world around us is longing is longing for the church to actually live out what we say we believe. And they're looking on. It's either our greatest apologetic or our greatest detractor. Will we say we believe one thing and live in light of it? Here's the second if we say that John points out. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Um, John was dealing with a number of sort of spiritual elitist types of people. They believed that they'd climbed the ascension to the point where their lives no longer were impacted by brokenness, were impacted by sin, that they were just living in the way of God all the time. And he goes, that's not, that's not who we are as followers of Jesus. We, we do not claim perfection. If you've if, if, this is, if you're new to a community of faith who believes in Jesus, can I just tell you right up front, um, we are a bunch of people who are messed up and saved by the grace of God. We're people stumbling and struggling along the road, knowing and convinced that God loves us, but also knowing that we fall short of his beautiful, glorious invitation, and he's there every time to pick us up. That's who we are. That is who we are. And if you think you have not sinned, can I just encourage you to, maybe there's some friends you have around you, or maybe you're married and you say, hey, um, are there any ways you see sin in my life? And then just get a really clean notebook, okay? And a good pen. And, then, and just, but good friends can do this too. We can, this Justin, the reason we call them blind spots 
is because we cannot see them ourselves. So this is where community comes into play. Oh, yeah. And John lands this, and he says, and if we say we have not sinned, so we've never sinned, um, he says, the truth is not in us. We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is unwillingness to be honest is what he is pointing at. See, you guys, it's the, the light the light of coming to terms with who we actually are that leads us to experience Jesus. If you want to keep wearing masks and you want to keep pretending that you're going to go through your entire life playing a charade with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords when the invitation is in front of you the whole time, John says it, he gives you the invitation in 1 John 1, 9, he says, so we confess our sins. And he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We do not confess in order to pry something out of God's hands. We confess in order to remember that God is a forgiving God. And so, we experience the light when we walk honestly and forgiven. Because the light both exposes and extinguishes sin. It's the beautiful, refining fire of God. It points it out, and it kills it. So confession does two things for the life of the believer. One, it says that there is always, always, always a platform to be honest. To say, this is what I'm wrestling with. This is what I'm struggling with. This is the darkness in me. And it also reminds us that there's always a pathway home. As verse 7 says, his blood has cleansed us, has literally made us pure and clean beyond anything we could possibly imagine. See, ironically, Christian fellowship is formed around the light of forgiveness, not around the facade of perfection. We're all broken. And we're all on this journey together, which is why the Apostle Paul will write, we bear one another's, we bear with one another. I love this verse because it's so unidealistic because there's times when you've just got to bear with each other. It's like he's saying, man, you're not going to like everybody all the time. Get over it because you're not circled around liking each other. You're circled around Jesus. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Heard a story earlier this summer um, about Corey Tenboom. In 1947, she had just given a talk in Munich. If you know anything about Corey Tenboom, she was in concentration camps and her sister died there along with a number of others. And the guard who worked at that concentration camp she was in happened to be at the talk that she gave, and he'd come to know the Lord. And he walked forward, and he held out his hand to her, and he said, Corey, do you forgive me? The person that took the life of her sister. Do, do you, Corey, do you, do you forgive me? And she writes that she knows that 
forgiveness was an act of the will as much as it was an emotion. And she said, I didn't feel the emotion, but I knew that I could step into the moment without feeling it. And she said, I, I reached out my hand and I said, I forgive you. And as she describes in her book, as she reached out her hand and he reached out his and they locked hands, she said, a feeling tingling in my shoulder moved all the way down my arm into my hand and I felt a rush over my entire body like nothing I've felt before. And her concluding thought was this, I had never known God's love as intensely as I did right then. You want, do you want, if you want to experience the forgiveness of God, man, forgive. Forgive those who've wronged you and step into the light. See, John would argue we're a band of imperfect people forgiven by an imperfect God. We're a community striving to be honest and living in the light of grace. We reject the narrative of perfection and cling on to his mercy. It's all we've got. And he concludes with this. He says, my little children, it's this pastoral term. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Notice he's pushing back against the Gnostics and the Docetists who said, it doesn't matter how you live. He's going, I, I want you to, to live in light. I want you to live in truth. I want you to live with God. But if anyone does sin, in, in the Greek, it's the, 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 the mood is a subjunctive. You could read it, um, you probably should, um, when you sin. We have a What? advocate. We have somebody who stands at our defense. We have Jesus the Messiah who says, no, 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 they're with me. All of their sin has been carried into the ground and I rose out the other side. We have an advocate who stands at our defense. And look up at me for just a moment. It is so important that you recognize you have an advocate because you also have an accuser. You have an enemy of your soul that actually hates the fact that Jesus is your advocate. And so he whispers things in your ears like, oh, God's angry at you, or he could never forgive that sin, or you're always going to be on the outside. You're always going to be lonely. You're always going to be rejected. You're always going to be this. And the extent to which you trust and know you have an advocate determines the volume of the accuser. He's for you. He's good. In him, there's no darkness at all. John goes on to say, not only, so when we sin on this journey, we're all on together. We have an advocate. He stands at our defense with the Father, Jesus the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, but not only for ours, but for the sin of the entire world. This word propitiation is a Greek derivative of a Hebrew idea that, that meant the mercy seat. It was the place inside the Holy of Holies in the temple where blood of an animal was sprinkled in order to have forgiveness or cleansing from God. The, the pagans had this idea about propitiation too. 
Their conviction was that um, something perfect had to die in order for an angry God to be not angry with you anymore. You made, you made God happy by killing something, and then he was okay with you. But the Christian idea is starkly different. John Stott writes about that such ideas are rightly dismissed as pagan and inconsistent with the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. It's not that God was angry and killing something or someone made him happy. It's that humanity was dead and Jesus carried our sin into the ground to make us alive. That's the beautiful truth of the gospel, friends, is that he takes the wrath of God, which is death and banishment and exile, and he takes it upon himself into the ground and walks out, creating a new humanity. And lest we think that this is limited to some, John would say this is the most inclusive, exclusive group in the entire world. It's not only, he didn't just bury our sins, carry them and bury them. He carried the sins of, well, how many? The whole world. See, we experience the light when we trust that it is finished. That it is finished. And I wonder if, as John writes this, he thinks back to the cross 40 years, 60 years before. We don't exactly know the date when this was written, but that he's looking back and he's remembering the words of Jesus as Jesus is on the cross when he says, not, well, I'm mostly done. He says, no, 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 no. It is finished. And when you get that, it turns out it's light. It it creates a light in people that is impossible in any other way. Friends, I, I don't know about you, but I need to hear that this morning. Is anybody with me? In January of 2002, a friend of ours, um, Bob Easton, who's um, in our congregation today, got a phone call from a friend. It was a friend who worked for the city of Littleton and was organizing the security for the Olympic torch being carried across Colorado. It left Greece and was on its way to Salt Lake City, and they asked Bob for a stretch of this journey to carry the torch. And it was lit in Greece, and it made its way here, and when Bob got it, he lit it, and it was this symbol of the Olympic Games. When John writes in chapter 1 of 1 John that God is light, implicit within his statement is that you and I are also people of the light. We have common life with the light. And for 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have been passing this light down from generation to generation. 
They've been passing this love, they've been passing this beauty, they've been passing this goodness, they've been passing this conviction that that Jesus really does change the way that we live on an everyday basis, and you can experience him as you walk in fellowship, and as you walk in forgiveness, and as you walk in his finished work. See, friends, as we, as you and I, experience the light, we also get the chance to extend it to the world around us. And see, John would say, John would say, that being a follower of Jesus, living in the way of Jesus, with the heart of Jesus, is a feet on the ground, not thing in the air experience. And my hope and prayer for you and I is that as we study this book and as we live life together, that we would taste and see that he is good and that we would hold out that light and that love to the people around us. Amen? Lord, we long for that to be true of us, to be a community that's gathered around the light, experiencing it, touching it, seeing it, hearing it in each other, in your creation, in your scriptures, by your spirit, that it would be all around us in a way that it wouldn't be able, we wouldn't be able to help but let it get out of us. So Father of light, we pray that you would illuminate us, that you'd light us up, that like a city on a hill, we would shine of your goodness because we believe that there's no darkness in you at all. May we live in your way. With your heart, we pray in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said...